Is there cats out the background? Sort of. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller, and I'm here with my friend Waddick Doyle. And we're in a bar in Paris called Le Train. Comment ça s'appelle là-bas Le café Au train de vie. Le train de vie. Au train de vie. Pas le train de vie. Au train de vie. Au train de vie. Parce qu'il y a un autre café qui s'appelle Le train de vie. Au train de vie. Like. On the train of life. Train of life, yes. Exactement. Le train de vie, c'est. C'est quoi l'interview Sans être curieux, monsieur. C'est pour une. Pour une. Comment on dit ça Pour iTunes, c'est pour sur les études des médias. Ah, okay. ouais, donc ça. vous allez parler du restaurant un peu aussi Non, on commence pour parler de restaurant. Hein, on commence par le restaurant. Ah, ouais, parce que c'est tellement chic. Hein. Vous, allez, vous allez décrire un peu le restaurant, c'est ça Non, je dis le nom. Oui, c'est là non, parfait. D'accord. Merci, monsieur. Au train de vie, you know, means like, it's two senses of it. Au train, un bon train de vie means somebody who spends lots of money. Oh, okay. Un train de vie is your style of life. Style of life. It's your, you know, mode of existence. No, it's more like how much money you spend on life. Oh, like your train de vie is like, you know, so in divorce case, you'll talk about your train de vie when you're calculating alimony. Sorry, so it's double sense. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm glad we're here in the middle of the train of life, and we're seeing uh, the whole place is mocked up as a railway carriage, with a fantastic poster that says "Vitesse, Exactitude, Confort," which kind of means, I guess, speed, timeliness, and comfort. And even the restrooms are clearly modelled on the railway life. We can tell that from outside. There are wonderful icons. And Wadik, you've been living in Paris how long? 23 years. 23 years, That's, so you must have been moving here when we met, because we probably met 23 years ago. We might have met 25 years ago. <laughs> might be 25 years ago. But we met in Brisbane, I think. We met in Brisbane. And you, when I first knew you as a Parisian, you were at, I think you were working at seven different universities. Well, I don't remember. I worked at lots because that's how France works. You have to keep trying your luck everywhere in case a full-time job comes up because you have to be an insider. But you so I used to work in, I had permanent employment in three of those. I mean, three of those one which was a famous school they called Polytechnique, set up by Napoleon to produce a technical elite. But unfortunately, they employed a man called Alan Finkelkart. Um, if you know Finkelkart. Of course. Um, Not personally. Something close to the um, force of intellectual evil in this world. Um, so well, but I left there. I, I stayed there a year and a half, and I worked in the American system at an art school called Parsons, which had a campus in Paris. And I worked also in the French public system, in a poor university in the outer suburbs. But now you are one of the head honchos at the American University of Paris. Head honcho, no, but I run a graduate program. In, <laughs> a graduate program in, in communication, global communication. Probably the you know 15 years ago I began working at AUP, American University of Paris, and I had to begin something called communications, but I really didn't know what it was, but every degree I had had the word communications in it. In the 
title, my Italian degree, my degree, I did forms of communication at Griffith University in my undergraduate degree, and then I had to try to discover what the Americans meant by communications, which is not clear, they mean many different things. So I had to construct something in that space of ambiguity, and I began that program there. And from the beginning, because I'd worked in Italy already on comparative semiotics, so trying to compare, uh, trying to compare the semiotic systems. My my thesis in Italy compared the semiotic systems of Gomas and the use of syntax as a model to that done by. Uh, Indians, potentially, who wrote the Yoga Sutra, and uh, in fact, so I'd written on that already in a very comparative framework. So I was very keen to produce a sort of communications program which was global and comparative and took non-Western cultures seriously. And would you describe yourself still as a Kremasian? Do you still have that semiotic square coursing through your mind? I do, yes, because it's all secrets and lies. You know, the relationship between appearance and being. It's very hard to not think of the secret. Gomas yeah. was, of course, a reservoir of ideas for other people, notably Baudrillard. The, the theory of seduction, the theory of the secret, a lot of that came out of Gomas's work and Frederick Jameson. Well, you know, the question of the Gomasians is what's the pur purpose of producing an understanding of structures of communications out of the structures of grammar? What is grammar? And is grammar something temporary and heuristic? Is it something observable and scientifically studyable? And therefore, can grammar be used as a model to other answers? It's the Caesarian question. And I don't think that was ever resolved by the sort of um, jump into various things that people call post-structuralism. One, the Derridean game of contradiction and playing out of contradiction, or two, the response of governmentality. It didn't resolve the, the fundamental problem was what is grammar and what is its use, I suppose, beyond understanding how a spoken or written language works. So in that sense, I think Gramas was never finished off properly. He just grew old. My favorite line was, yes, when the fashion, someone asked him what about patience, and he said, I'm afraid you'll have to wait till next week for the answer to that. <laughs> the Simulus Passions was a really interesting movement at the end of that. That, you know, he'd sort of fallen out of fashion, but the idea that there are universal, and my thesis in Italy was on the socio-semiotics of the passions. So it was actually talking about the idea of how syntax was used to explain emotions in various different in two different cultures, basically. in two different systems of thought. And Italy. And affect is coming back now. I mean, affect has become very big in cultural studies now. And it was it was ignored in the 80s when we were doing that work. I mean, you know. I fear as though, in a rather amateurish way, though. Yeah. Where people just write about their emotions yeah. and endow this with massive weight. Yeah. Or we'll try to give a neurological basis to it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and quite different from what you were doing. But it is interesting the way that affect has become quite high. Speaking of Italy, uh, apart from studying uh, and writing this thesis, 
it's also been important as a topic of your interest because you've yeah. another PhD at Griffith, right? That's right. Yeah. At Griffith University mm -hmm. in Australia, and that was on Italy. Which is where we met. Which is where we met. But your interest in Italy has remained uh, political and mediatic, if I can mm. use an ugly mm. adjective. So Absolutely. This is a moment of immense fascination around the world mm. and what's going on in it. At one level it feels as though it's just one more moment in a chaotic history and basically repeats endlessly. At another moment it feels like a rupture mm. uh, because you know, as we speak it's the week after the Italian election. Things are in their customary crisis but is it really customary or is it different? Mm. Well you have 8.5 million people who voted for Bipe Grier who's a clown, uh, literally, and is a sort of anti-political figure uh, whose platform is completely unclear. People who have been elected um, have no background in politics, so it's a sort of reject rejection of the political class. And Berlusconi has managed to revive his fortunes and um, come second very narrowly, almost came first with around 29% of the vote. So it's a, uh, it's a remarkable uh, achievement. It's, in fact, it suits him very well because he can block the formation of a government, but he doesn't have to actually take government, which, you know, has many reasons. But Luskoni is interesting. The other, but the important, I think, and interesting thing about this election is how important television was. And, um, you know, after lots of us have been saying, you know, that elections and our questions of social media. We all remember the hype in 2008, was it when Obama was elected, that everything now occurs through social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter. What we saw in here was a victory of something sort of an old-fashioned Debordian spectacle politics, where Berlusconi performed, as he always does, um, in an economy of attention, attracting attention to himself by breaking codes. But he also spent a vast amount of money on TV commercials. Well, yes, if you could say that, because he doesn't even need to, because he owns a television network where they broadcast. It's silly to call it spending money, but I guess it's opportunity cost in that sense. He could have been selling the time to somebody else. The way that that dynamic has been described in the British media over the last few days, I just arrived today from London, that's London, England, is that we're in Paris, France, by the way. We're, we're, we are. In, that's right. <laughs> Not Texas. A long way from Paris, Texas. A long way from Vendor. But lots of people in Paris, France register companies in Paris, Texas. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that has been said in the media there is that uh, Griot is the new media candidate and Berlusconi is the old media But mm. this isn't the triumph of television, it's actually the triumph of the new media insurgents, which sounds quite different from what you're saying. But that's, I think, what the Guardian, the Observer, the Times... It's true that Beppe Griot works with the new media and has brought people who are completely disaffected with politics Mac. The problem is that the left has a completely managerial attitude to politics and, and has, um, that managerialism is just gives people nothing to hope for or to vote for beyond that the other people are somehow bad. 
Um, so the utopian element of the political left has gone. So the utopia becomes, let's get rid of this political class, let's stop funding political parties. And yes, it's true that message is passed from the media. But to go back to Berlusconi, I mean, he does these spectacular television events. I don't know if you saw uh, his... It wasn't just advertising, it was him on talk shows uh, and sort of trivialising events. There was one famous instance where he refused to sit on a chair where someone else had sat on and he cleaned it with a um, handkerchief and went on that and created a lot of attention. So, I mean, basically he does events and says things which uh, attract attention. He also made completely unrealistic... Promises, promises to eliminate property tax and to pay back property tax, which would really, you know, technically even further into bankruptcy and destroy any credit rating it had. But his companies, the day after the election, media sets uh, shares went up 10%. So he is. So his company is doing okay. He is even also if a populist. Yes. So it's two kinds of populism versus a managerialism. Technocracy, yes? Right, that's correct. Yeah, I'd say so. And one populism is clearly from above in the sense that it's run by stage managed by somebody who owns most of the media. Mm-hmm. The other is at least seemingly from below in that it's run by somebody who is a, an outcast in certain ways. He's very reminiscent of the French figure Coloche. Have you ever, Coluche, you ever heard of him? Who ran for presidential election? The French have a word, the Italians have a word for it, qualcunismo, anybodyism. He's an anybody, could be anybody. Qualcunismo. Yeah, qualcunismo. Sounds like your phone. Why don't we just stop this for a second so you can answer your phone? We're doing this job interviews. So we're back live. <coughs> uh, Warwick and I, before he had to take that call, when you have conversations, interview people in well, high office, you have to accept that you're not always priority one. Right, so we were chatting about Pepe Silvio Berlusconi and the sense of populism that can course through both the so-called new media and the so-called legacy media. Mm-hmm. That they can both be What's interesting about Berlusconi is that he is both a proprietor and a politician, but also a reformer. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Berlusconi, because you've been following him for the better part of a quarter of a century. Yeah. Uh, when you and I first met, two things that would clear a room would be copyright and Berlusconi, because no one was interested in copyright, and no one had heard of Berlusconi. Well, in the 21st century, everybody's interested in copyright, and everyone's heard of Berlusconi. Mm. It's funny because it was a very interesting place to be, Brisbane, in the late 80s, early 90s, bizarrely enough, but lots of things came out of there that we had no idea were of any global significance, but actually were way ahead of their time in many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, I studied Berlusconi uh, as an accident because I was studying television. And I was studying really the problem of deregulation of television and what happens when you have a completely deregulated market. And I began studying it before Berlusconi rose. So the first thing was the free radio movement and sort of, you know... Radio Alice, is that what's Radio Alice was part of that, yeah, that became fashionable. And Bippe Grillo, who's made a big comeback recently, 
as a sort of intellectual and, and the revival of those sort of avant-gardist ideas. Uh, but, um, yeah, sure, but there were thousands of stations. I think in, in 1979 in Italy, I think a third of the television stations in the world were in Italy because the Constitutional Court said anybody could set up a radio or television station who they wanted to. And the interesting paradox is that Berlusconi rose out of that as opposed to other media moguls in Italy who tried and didn't succeed. So my reading of that is that Berlusconi from the very beginning understood audiences habit and understood how to move and manage habit. Uh, and habit understood in quite a, um, uh, a neutral sense, that is as a, as a conglomerate of of a population's mind-body daily activities. Yeah, in the sort of muscle medicine sense of habitus. Yeah, yeah, though not with the sort of reproductive notion of Bourdieu, right, I would but, say. But, not seeing but, that, but you know. Right, but an ensemble of practices mm. that make up the quotidian That's right. at a mm. banal level. And that mixed with. Yeah, and mixed with the Debordian sort of yeah. idea of, the, of the, what happened to the spectacle, and yeah. after all, Debord was all about breaking up habits. I mean, that's what he, right. he saw. So indeed, indeed. In Carlo Frecciaro was one of the first big programmers of Berlusconi was the Situationist. He'd been in 68 in the Statale in Milan running that. He later became a virulent opposer, opposer of Berlusconi and worked for the public television. But you know, that he was quite happy to use Situationists because um, that's what it's all about. It's all about breaking the habits of daily life and reconstructing them. And power re-understood not as controlling people's ideas but controlling or, or having a way of managing the daily habits of people, such as what they watch and then, you know, what sort of things they eat for breakfast and then um, what they, their passion for sport. And the other thing to understand about Berlusconi is how he moved, um, once he established audiences, he moved them from one activity to another. He already did that with television and with sport and with shopping because he set up the first big um, drive-in supermarkets on the edge of Italian cities, uh, having bought the, um, the equivalent of uh, Woolworths, where are we, Walmart, I don't know, no, really not Woolworths, I would say like the old inner city cheap department store, uh, was that Woolworths in the United States or Britain, I don't know, something like that. Coles in Australia, that sort of thing. And um, he brought that up and then tried to explain. At that time he had a debt crisis, but he was really, and he was interested in introducing a credit card, which linked the whole process. But the thing is, the key idea, I think, is to go back to the idea of Roma Jakobson, of shifting. That, you know, he had the idea of a linguistic shifter, but what he would do is use something to shift people from one set of habits to another. And sometimes that shifter, the thing that moved them, was him. Yeah. He, he made himself into a shifting sign. So he was the president of AC Milan, and he was also the prime minister, and he used the metaphor of winning. He'd do it with religion. I mean, we can talk about it later, but it's an interesting way of doing things. It's, a, it's an idea that if you... The deregulation and the idea of markets ignores this function of the governmentality of habit. Yeah. Uh, yeah that sure. makes sense? Sure, no, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely.
Well, the point about it is deregulation is predicated on simply the act of consuming. It is not predicated on thinking through what the act of consumption means or what it leads to. It's simply that there will be mass rationality deriving from individual selfishness for those of us, and this mass rationality will allocate resources rationally in every conceivable sense. That and negative freedom, the idea that the absence of restriction will lead to a freer society, uh, yeah. that, which ignores this capacity of um, who has the power to form habit. And Berlusconi very quickly understood that advertising's key role was to form habit, but the first thing one had to do was, con was to control the means of producing audiences. Well, it's interesting that we have then two political actors right now yeah. who are both seen as buffoons. Mm. Uh, Berlusconi is again and again constituted as a buffoon. Outside it. Outside it. Less so inside Very little understanding of the, uh, the rationality and the logic that has impelled a lot of his business success. Yeah. It's as if the assumption were this all derives from corruption mm. rather than actually having a relationship to the audience. In the same way that uh, Grillo represents a figure where it's very hard for people to understand him other than as a buffoon who touches a populist tendency. Yeah. Well, the whole issue of corruption is interesting because it's all about uh, the tendency towards Grio is we reject corruption. They're all corrupt. They're all equally corrupt. We reject them so we'll vote for this uh, mode. Uh, and of course, there's many ways of explaining Berlusconi which are valid. I mean, one of the ones that Marco Travaglia has done is trace the money. And clearly, at the origin, the money had some very, there were massive amounts of capital being injected in a private company with no transparency. Uh, the initial money was coming from a lawyer in Switzerland. Uh, we don't know where this was coming from. There are strong suspicions that it had connect with money laundering. Um, none of them have been definitively proved, they, um, but there were definitely connections between Marcelo Durti, the head of his advertising network, and uh, the Sicilian Mafia, that he's been to jail for that. Um, and in a certain sense, there's the other side of the Italian psyche, which is everybody's corrupt. So let's vote for Grio, who says they're all we hate them all. Or we might as well vote for Berlusconi because he's the best at corruption. Yeah. And we can also get what we want. Because Berlusconi has somehow manifested himself as the image of a person who fulfills desires, who gets what he wants. The famous quote from Berlusconi in the late 80s when asked his favorite philosopher, he said, Casanova. Because Avanova said, a man can get anything he, he wants if he wants it enough. So he sort of has cultivated this philosophy, this image of he who satisfies his desire, which goes with deregulation. Sure, and that would also suggest that the revelations about, was it Bunga Bunga or something, mm -hmm. are not, in fact, <laughs> items for the prosecution to suggest he's a buffoon. They're exemplifications of this hedonistic figure no. and the promise of hedonism as the acne of a Yes, I suppose hedonism is the... I have never thought of that word in relation to him, but yeah, I've always thought of it as desire fulfillment. But um, it could be any desire, because he has the other religious side that goes with it too. Anything he wants, 
he gets. Uh, he once said to Pope John Paul uh, II that they were both similar because they both were like winning teams. Him and the Catholic Church always won. Fantastic. So do you see changes in him over these decades? I mean, he's an old man. Well, yes, well, there are certainly changes. He's had several cosmetic surgery. He's had um, hair transplants. Coloring certainly the colouring of the hair. He's and he's very upfront about this. It's like he shows his artifice. There's no, there's no pretense that he hasn't had uh, surgery, which fits with this other image that he can manipulate the wheel. But I think he's... Um, how I see changes? I've seen some changes, but not that many. He's still at the game of controlling the political machine. I think the biggest change was in the early 80s with his big national success when he wanted to create a European television network, that he wanted to be a global business figure. And that failed and he had to retreat into the Italian state, in a sense. Because the vision before that was to create what he'd done in Italian television in the world. Why well, perhaps because the rule of law was stronger elsewhere, one clear reason. Um, he tried to get the five in England, remember that? Yeah. And he tried to get... Still going. Yeah, and he got the... Um, in, in, in France, you know, he had Le Sank. It failed as well, uh, for, because of, partly because he wasn't able to do everything he wanted uh, there. Uh, he had shares in the Telefunf in, 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 in Germany. Um, but the model he produced in, in, in Italy was not exportable for many reasons, and also, perhaps also for macroeconomic reasons, that he came to a time in Italy where he had a highly regulated advertising industry, and he was able to break all those rules because of the anarchic nature of the, the Italian deregulation. It wasn't really a deregulation, it's what Philip Schlesinger has called an A-regulation, because simply the, the Supreme Court ruled that anyone could set up libel laws had trouble being applied. People set up networks which were simply, only purpose was blackmail. That is, they would have a frequency which would block another frequency, and if you didn't pay them, you couldn't broadcast. I mean, it was chaos, say, between 76, yes, extortion, between 76, 81. And so he provided this order, an order of desire, in a sense where people started watching his television networks because he was able to counter program right. So he relied on that non-regulated environment, which doesn't really apply anywhere else. So the norms weren't completely exposed. That's right. I want to ask you in a minute, Wadik, about your work you've done with France 24, France 24, big international television service available in French and English. And Arabic. And our um, available online uh, as well as via cable and satellite. Uh, but before we get on to that, I wanted to ask you theoretical questions. If I pull out the strands of the way you've been talking over the last, I was going to say quarter of a century, but 25 minutes, I see three elements that are important. One is semiotics as broadly construed. Uh, another is political economy, and another is ethnography. Mm. But 
you're interested in how meaning is generated, you're interested, interested in who pays and who benefits from it, and you're interested in how those things play out in the everyday, as I understand. Mm. Is that very roughly the way you think communications, culture, need to be analysed, some mixture of these things? Or am I... Well, certainly my work was, I think, uh, very much into connecting the semiotic and political economy. Uh, into that framework comes the problem of culture, whether the appropriate way to study culture is ethnography, or what you actually mean by ethnography, I'm not sure. That is, I don't sit in a room and watch people watching TV. Um, but you talked about Berlusconi mm. as an ethnographer. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, maybe an armchair ethnographer, but somebody who sought to understand chronicle, in his case, alter the habitus. Yeah, yeah, certainly trying to understand the habitus and the transformation. And I suppose what I'm interested in, in a sense, is the philosophy of communication understood in a popular sense. What are the sort of ideas and practices of communication that ordinary people have across the world? How are they different? from each other? How do they relate to their media practices, to their consumption practices? Um, and how do they circulate on a global level? But I've never been able to publish that stuff. It's just how I think, and I think that's what would be interesting to know more of. My specific stuff has been on, on Italy. Um, and I suppose it all comes back to conceiving of the self and the theorization of the self um, and the type of self one has to be in these different systems and the training that media provides to behave in a certain way. I, I run a graduate seminar on the globalization of techniques of the self and that interests me a lot, you know, because uh, we have this other form of globalization which is uh, the practices of self that circulate in the world yoga, tai chi, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis in India. What happens when a technology of the self, what Foucault called a technology of the self, uh, could be moved from one cultural context to another? And in a sense, media does that to us in a way anyway. I mean, advertising does that in many ways. Maurice Levy, the head of Publicis, the huge French advertising conglomerate, I think third in the world now, always said that's what we do. And Drew, who's the head of TBWA, also French, uh, also argued that. So they have to adapt advertising to the cultural practices of the self. And that go we can go much further in that sense, but I'm probably not answering your question completely. So I suppose ethnography, in the sense of what I'm really interested in, is the, is the idea of self-training. And I think we have that in common, uh, sort of ideas that we're already exploring in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, no, absolutely. I, I guess I, uh, I'm trying to locate this in terms of our listenership. We have listeners in uh, 50 countries. Mm. Most Hello. <laughs> That's called direct address. Monique's just broken the fourth wall. It's never been done before in Paris. And people therefore come from very different kinds of traditions. Right. And language backgrounds, obviously. But, 
Putting together those things is unusual. Within communication studies and within cultural studies, where those things tend to be And semiotics is something that is honored as something of value in English language cultural studies, but very rarely actually done. Yeah, well, that's true. And uh, I mean, you know, you could say about semiotics what Idris Shah said about Omar Hayam. You know, uh, it suffered a lot. But, well, you know, I always say that about Gramsci, that Gramsci suffered a lot in his life, but nothing can be compared to what he was tr suffered in translation. And I think that's a bit the same thing with semiotics, that it was transformed into Althusserianism when it went across the channel and was, and was sort of taken up by Stuart Hall. And, you know, the big move was that essay, A New Left Review, where Althusser was translated, I think, by Judith Williamson uh, in 64, 65. And the sort of cultural studies movement grew over that reading of semiotics. But the idea that there could be structures of... the idea of actual investigation of language. How does grammar really work? How does comparative grammar work in different languages? And how many can we keep building systems to keep understanding culture through understanding grammar was abandoned. In terms of, and cultural studies often took the semiotic as, you know, if you look at Branston and Stafford's high school reader in media and cultural studies, it has two pages, I think, on, on Saussure and semiotics, which shows that language is arbitrary, linguistic and communication systems are arbitrary, and therefore they're sort of systems of social control or hiding, masquerading the reality of social relations, which is somehow accessible without being understood in language. I don't know if, that, if I'm being coherent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that seems to be the problem in the cultural studies framework and why semiotics still has a certain relevance. Uh, are those categories like, you know, for example, are the categories of, of, of person, the first, second and third person, are they universal categories? Um, we know there are certain variations, you know, you know, you could, uh, in, across languages, but are they universal? If so, what does that represent? What can that tell us about understanding communication processes? That was a Benvenistian question. Um, it seems to me that was put out there and left there without people really studying what it would mean in Chinese or Indonesian or Arabic. Sure. Well, it was never done in the cross-cultural way that you're proposing and endeavouring in your seminar. And certainly in the United States, in communication studies, there was very little address of semiotics at all. And what there was tended to be of the kind you just mentioned with reference to the book. Mm. Uh, something about the arbitrariness of meaning, mm. if you like, and language is occupied terrain but never actually truly come to grips with linguistic difference and how it can construct different worlds. You know, we just had an experience with the name of this bar that we're in, what it was, how to translate it, which one of its meaning, available meanings should you address, a classic case of denotation and connotation. And uh, that requires an understanding of 
the daily usage of the words as, as, as opposed to dictionary translation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, sure, and it's to do with seducing us to come in here. And we were walking down the street, we weren't planning to come here, but we saw this little heterotopia yeah. between two railway stations and thought, let's pretend That's we're us. still on a train. <laughs> <laughs> and then when it fitted with our train of life, our, <laughs> our class background, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to say train de vie in English. I mean, you know, your how would your how much you spend the month? How do you say that in English? Yeah, like in a divorce case, how much your not your quality of life? Discretionary expenditure. Yeah, that's a possible. That's beyond housing yourself and buying necessary. You know, it's your habits of life. Your train de vie, which this is about, is like: Do you go to restaurants five times a week? Do you go to restaurants once a year? Do you go to Michelin one-star restaurants or so this is a, this is a yeah this is it it's where mobile train that we're on right now all right. is the last I feel like we're I feel like it's about <laughs> I feel like it's about to start moving at any moment <laughs> but that's a bit like what Bourdieu is about no we hope waiting we waited for the train to move but it just stayed there did you ever read his memoir Waddick? no I didn't no. Uh, it's like all his books essentially unreadable unlike many of his books only 100 pages long and hence essentially readable and there are many bits in it where you're clearly trying to want him to come out so he can explain what it was really like being on guard duty in Algiers or whatever but there's a great moment when he meets Paul Lazarsfeld where the Ford Foundation sends Lazarsfeld to Paris to instruct the natives truth. And this is in about 1964. This, this is what Bernie works on, Bernie Gigan. Do you know him? Yeah, he works on the relationship between semiotics and the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. Oh, wow. Well, it's yeah. And Bourdieu is summoned, along with some other guys, to meet the great man in the bar of the great man's hotel. There's fantastic three or four pages in what is otherwise an oblivion of the book, where he recounts Lassesfeld's cigar and the smoke twirling from the cigar as Lassesfeld, who has read something by Bourdieu in one of his fellow travellers. Well, that's not really how to do social science. So let me tell you, you Frenchies, you don't understand this, you understand it. And it's fantastic because all Bourdieu can think about is the this big cigar, this man sitting back instructing people on how to behave. Right. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> you remember his introduction to distinction where he talks about how he writes in French and how long the sentences are and there's this sentence of about a page and a half <laughs> talking about long sentences. <laughs> he had a sense of irony. So um, I wonder if we could move on now to force Okay. as you said, in Arabic, in English, in French. And I know from, I guess, looking you up on YouTube, actually, you've been on it quite a bit yeah. over the last little while. Tell us a little bit about being on France Farcart, right? your experience as an academic intellectual appearing on a worldwide television service, the sorts of things you were asked about you were supposed to know about, what you learned or didn't learn about performance. Mm. Well, just before I answer that, France Vancart was Chirac's attempt to answer to CNN when in the 2005 riots, CNN said that the riots in Paris were like Tiananmen Square in Peking. Whoops. Beijing. He didn't like that. He certainly didn't like that. So he decided that France should have a television network. And the decision was made in French, English and Arabic. And it's watched a lot in Africa. Very big in Francophone Africa. Uh, and 
has really come into its own since the Arab Spring. It had by far the best coverage on Tunisia and Libya, I think, and detailed reports there, better than Al Jazeera and all that, and somehow a little bit more Al Jazeera became linked to the agenda of Muslim Brotherhood somehow. So it's been interesting and has a role in the Arab world, has a role in Africa. It's interesting for the French to, to try and maintain some sort of presence there. <laughs> Intellectually. Okay, being on it, uh, they call me up normally on the day, and if I can go, they send a cab and take me to wherever I want afterwards. So it's fun getting That's the cab, nice. picking you up, and taking you there. Makes you go in there, you get made up. You go up, you go in there, and you and you ask what they're going to ask you. Ask the person who rings you what they're going to talk to you about. They can't tell you. You sometimes have 30 seconds or 40 seconds before you go and sit on the stool. Uh, there used to be a program called Face Off I would go to and we'd have to agree with the other person where we were going to disagree because to make some sort of television debate we'd have to talk about what the, what the, where our points of disagreement were because it's very boring if we disagree. Um, and then there will be also debates, longer programs of debates. Um, it depends on the person who's presenting to you and how, uh, you know, who's the compare of the program, what questions they, sort of questions they ask. I remember once I did an analysis of Strauss-Kahn's television performance and I said to them, you know, I'm happy to answer everything, but please do not ask me about the interior politics of the Socialist Party. And they said, sure, sure, sure. The first thing they asked me is, so how does this affect the <laughs> politics of the Socialist Party? You know, and, um, but, you know, when I was young, I did a degree in Italy and I did lots of oral exams. So just like in this questionnaire, when you asked me about France Van Kart, when this in this interview, yeah. I answered with another question and answered that. <laughs> One learns to respond with. You, I learned that what you have to do is work out what you want to say, and whatever is the question, and answer that no matter what you're asked, and and try to get that those sound bites across, if you like, whatever you're asked. Yeah. Um, you could have done media training for a politician. Yeah, I made made more money. I have not yet finished, Horlick, with my interrogation about the Okay. So, okay, it's made this interesting intervention born out of statist defensiveness on the part of Chirac, but in, after the riots in the Bourdieu here in Paris eight years ago, but in fact has done some interesting, quite independent, non-statist reporting of the Arab Spring, you'll see. And it has people unlike you to engage in debate. What have you learnt about intellectual life from it? Not just how to get your one point across, but has it trained you in any way that's different from your previous training, particularly given that you are, amongst other things, a media scholar? What is the role of intellectual on television? Very French question. Well, it's different from what it used to be, you know. I mean, in France, the most popular program until the early 90s was Apostrophe, which was a book review program. Um, that's long gone now. Um, and so one used to have a long time to talk. Uh, but this doesn't really fit with the news loop, where, you know, you constantly go back to the hour-long... Uh, conversation. I try to have vigorous debate because uh, I think that attracts people's attention. I think it interests them and try to launch new ideas. Um, when I do it, I get responses mainly from Africa, from people who saw me, send me emails. Um, 
occasionally from the Arab world. I think it's interesting to speak to those people. And I mean, part of my problem is that, as I spoke earlier, or you know, a lot of my work has been about the problems of consumption and the organisation of consumption. And I really think this is probably the dialogue with people who wrote to me shows me that how power operates and analysing and thinking about power is very different if you're in sub-Saharan Africa and that's something we as cultural studies scholars really haven't come to terms with enough. Um, that would be one thing. Second thing would be, you know, what I said earlier, which is the need to produce concise statements that are, that are able to not be taken up wrongly. On another set of media appearances, I remember I went on to CNN before the invasion of Iraq, and I said that, you know, that no one in France was in favour of the invasion of Iraq because they had a long experience of occupation. They had both been occupied and they had a lot of trouble getting out of Algeria or deciding they wanted to get out of Algeria, where they occupied it for 132 years. Um, I got so much hate mail from that because I was completely... People said that I was comparing the United States to Nazi Germany because Nazi Germany occupied... Uh, France, or heaven forbid, that I was suggesting the United States had colonial interests in Iraq. <laughs> but um, uh, so I learned that you've got to be very, very clear, succinct, and sharp. Yeah. And has that affected your teaching or your writing? Would you say has being on television quite often for an international audience made you rethink pedagogy or scholarship? Well, I think there are certain rules of communication that you have to keep code-breaking. You know, I've always liked that term, the metalingual. You know, you have to sort of, um, you know, I say that this podcast is, you know, probably quite boring, but there has this interesting fact that we both speak with an Australian accent. I mean, bring something out which talks about the actual act of communication itself attracts people's attention. You have to do that when you teach all the time. You don't do that when you write. Um, so you have to constantly, you know, and we're, we're completing, increasingly competing in an economy of attention. I mean, the world is so different. In some ways, it's easier to teach than it ever has been, you know. I want to show three minutes of what happened in Croatian television in 1991. I can put it on YouTube instantly. I don't have to prepare a tape. I mean, it's so, the whole world, the archive of world image history and television history is so available. On the other hand, to try and get people to, to, to take things seriously and to think in more depth, is more difficult. difficult. You mentioned Apostroph being once the most popular program on television. Mm. Why do you think that that form of long, deliberate intellectual engagement has fallen out of favour with the public? Speed. Virilia. Everything is faster and faster and faster. Lots of thrills and spills. And, um, Does that apply to you? Can you not read things as you once read them? Yes, I think it's definitely true. We, we tend to read institutionally, is that what we say? You know, tend to read bits and pieces, jump from one thing to another. Definitely the case. There's some wealth in that. Probably more erudite than I used to be. Uh, but it's... Um, 
there's definitely it's harder to think longer and more clearly and produce the sorts of things one used to do so maybe that's just age I don't know. Yes, they shall not wear it, except, of course, the bloody thing does. Well, there's one last area that I'd like to engage with you, Wadek, if I can. Um, there's time for you to introduce things that I may have missed that you would like people to know about. Before I get on to that, um, finding some of your work, where do people go to get hold of some of this stuff? Uh, well, I haven't published much. There's a piece, if you're interested in the Berlusconi stuff, there's a piece called One Man Brand. Um, Berlusconi in the book Blowing Up the Brand by Devin Powers and Melissa Arachevic, I think that's how you say her name, and uh, it's edited by them. There's a couple of pieces in, um, I've done some interesting stuff on format transfer between Italy and Bulgaria. Um, what else? The sort of cultural studies stuff I used to do, uh, did some work on Hanif Qureshi called Is Ethnocentric? Is ethnocentrism an ethnocentric idea, um, for example? These the academic publishing, that's yeah, it. Yeah. Or you can look me up on YouTube and see me talk. When you did the Force My Country, was that in English or French? Both. Both. Never in Arabic, unfortunately. But they try to do, the interesting about France Vincar is they try to do the same thing in different languages at the same time. It's supposed to be going simultaneously, which is sort of impossible. But that's the idea, that every program, they're not, unlike Al Jazeera, which has a completely different format and program schedule for their English, Arabic, and I think now Portuguese, soon to be French programs, France Vincar is the idea, it's the same thing, and they all work in the same newsroom. There's three news rooms all on the one floor, all in open plexiglass. Interesting place. Where Alive. It? It's in the French sort of media park, which is Isim de Molineux, which is just outside central Paris, which has you know was a sort of has been built as the hub for communication and media industries. Um, it's about 15 minutes from where I work. So anyway, the last thing I wanted to get you to talk about um, briefly is something that you and I raised shortly before we started recording this afternoon, namely the drift towards creative industries as a discourse, as a logic, as a policy technology, as an intellectual field. And I wondered two things. Firstly, your view on that, and secondly, what that has meant, of anything, in France. You know, is Richard Florida important, for example, here? No, I don't think anyone's heard much of Richard Florida here. Um, no. Uh, I think the premise of a lot of that work... I actually think the term creative industries is useful. It's interesting. It's certainly a useful way to market degrees and to revive the ways of teaching knowledge in useful ways where people can construct careers for themselves. And that's what they need to do now. Um, so I like the idea of creativity, but what I don't like in them... Uh, some of this idea is that creativity is good because it makes money or produces creative clusters or uh, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I think that creativity is about that it's interesting to teach creativity industries because what we're dealing with increasingly now are people constructing their own niches. Increasingly everyone is constructing a niche. Richard Sennett talks a lot about that. Um, and finding and constructing something that matches their experience, their personality, 
through their individual research projects and pedagogy seems to be very important. If that can be linked to a project of creative industry, studying uh, fashion, studying um, gaming, uh, and in, which are increasingly part of our economy anyway, studying branding, which is, you know, uh, one of the people I'm very interested in is Adam Adlinson, who, who argues that, you know, 50% of our economy is now immaterial. So dealing with that is fine, and people finding their niche according to their own abilities is, seems to be an important part of education. We cannot ignore uh, the need to, to train people who can earn decent livings and behind a sort of facade of critique. So in that sense, I agree with the creative industries as a pedagogical move. Some of the ideological arguments that um, it links to a um, economic success for its own sake really don't interest me. Because I think that, you know, what one has to do in those creative industries is think about the what are the grounds for training the individual who works in them? What are the ethical grounds as well? Understood very broadly. What techniques of self do they need to work in those industries? One of the things you probably know if you teach in these large master's degrees is you get people who come out of practically every part of the creative industries who want to retrain to work in another. Um, because they're burnt out, because the system is built on burning out individuals uh, and the current system we're working in. in France, we have this ph phenomenon of internships, where people often work in internships basically as slave labour for two years before they get any sort of job. Uh, I recently saw an advertisement for a Russian-French bilingual person having one year of experience to work as an intern for 400 euros a month. I mean, if that's, well, I suppose they get paid in creativity in enjoying their creative jobs or the cultural capital they get from working in advertising agency. I would like that to stop, but I don't know how to make it stop. So here are people interested in ideas of the precarious and the cognitive as resistive organizational intellectual forms for thinking about people who perhaps want to work in the creative industries but getting screwed doing so. Like no, I, th I don't think that discourse is very common. I think it's more. I think the sort of idea of Lazarotto of immaterial labour has a certain function, but it's not quite that. Um, but I think it's more at a theoretical level, and the understanding of precariousness at the moment is just something evil that shouldn't exist. I don't think it's really because there's still a resistance of the state to it. There's a still a resistance of, of labour regulation here, which is quite strong. So the Negri cognitariat stuff isn't particularly popular here. Uh, there's a magazine called Multitude, which pushes those ideas. Of Negri's ideas, I don't think that's necessarily that which takes importance. As I said previously, I think Lazarotto's argument is more structured and coherent and appears to the French intellectual climate more. Interesting. And so the, the last thing I wanted to ask, just, uh, which derives from that, is 
What should this mean for cultural studies? Does this mean there's no need for cultural studies? There can just be creative industries and the critique doesn't matter or is of minimal importance that we should organise ourselves around the prevailing political economy and what it means for the professional needs of our students. I would say definitely not. I would say that what's missing in cultural studies has been this problem of the cross-cultural, the dealing with the different world traditions of intellectual life, which have been swept under the table. And I think that you know your own work has really brought out this problem of, of self-training and managing the self and dealing with the self, and that's what actually has to come back to the centre, these different cultural traditions of this of training the self which come together. Therefore, um, if its value is purely from the market, I don't think so, but if its value comes from um, considering um, how meaning is constructed in daily lives, which includes the constructing... You know, Paolo Fabri used to say there are three things in considering meaning, with three E's in Italian. Uh, at the most superficial level you have etiquette, underneath that you have aesthetics, and underneath that you have ethics, and the way that, that meaning somehow generates from an ethical basis up to a form of etiquette. Uh, so my answer to that is cultural studies has to really take the question of culture more seriously and you know, what's its relationship with anthropology? You know, uh, and so the relationship with economics has never been really well thought out, I don't think. And certainly the relationship with anthropology hasn't been, hasn't been developed in anything like the right way. So it needs to be a much more cross-cultural model, but one that decenters the conventions. And the, the trouble is that a lot of post-colonial critique in the English language doesn't do any of that. Mm. Uh, it feigns uh, to do so, but in fact, that isn't really what occurs. Because to go back to what would you call ethnography, it doesn't really go in depth into understanding what other forms of, of let's say, what culture. If we think culture as linked to self-training, it does little to understand how self-training occurs. Darren Peters, Peter, John Darren Peters, communication theorist, uh, once talked about religions as the fossil fuels of ethics. And, you know, I do think that, like, what we're seeing in China is using up the fossil fuels of Confucianism. Having a workforce which will be disciplined like that is produced by the village life of China, and to some extent, the sort of that people will endure what they are enduring for us to have our computers and microphones and, and, and it comes from a type of training which won't last, which the consumerism it sets up itself will undermine. undermine. Mm. And how you know, can they go to Africa after that? Where can they keep producing the docile labor force that will, will accept the conditions to keep producing? I mean, or they won't need it, they'll have robots, we'll go to the post-human. I don't know, but I mean, that seems to me the central question. I see the colonialist project very much linked to that. And to some extent, um, 
what is this? The the celebration of transgression in certain cultural studies work uh, fits also with that idea. It hasn't worked out the relationship between modernity and tradition. That's the bottom line. We don't really have a theory of tradition and what the relationship to tradition is. You know, Giddens has not had that much uh, say in in cultural studies. Yet his work is extremely interesting. But all his work on on you know the creation of the self in modernity. Yet he never defines what would constitute tradition. It's just this sort of non-modernity. And to go on, as we said earlier, the non-Western is constantly evoked as another, but it's never explored in any serious manner. Either by Foucault, either by Derrida, all the no, sort of thinkers no. of the post-structuralist moment. It doesn't exist epistemologically. Mm. Uh, it exists as an object of knowledge, not a subject of knowledge. And That's the problem. Again and again. Well, Warwick Doyle, thank you very much for this very enjoyable hour. It's been great. Of course, just as we're finishing, Autrin uh, de Vie is emptying out. Uh, I can't think of a better embodied metaphor than to be here to have had this exchange with you. And I want to exactly promise from you that when your long-awaited book on Berlusconi comes out, you will re-enter the pod, charging in on some white steed or dark steed to share with us what can now only be hinted at in your insights into this most remarkable figure. I'd rather just walk barefoot, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>